Welcome back to the Vine Church podcast. Today, we are hearing from God's Word with this Sunday's sermon. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Odium and Church Crookham, and we'd love to have you join us over there. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's uh, great to see you, whether you're on YouTube or, or here in person. It's great to be with you. So this week, uh, I decided I would watch Star Wars for the first time, the original trilogy. And so I watched A New Hope. I thought, great. I watched Empire Strikes Back. I thought, this is fantastic. I love where this is going. But I decided, if I've done two out of three, I probably don't need the last one. And so my thoughts on the trilogy are, there's no resolution. It doesn't really go anywhere. I'm not happy about that. And then I decided, I'm a bit hungry. I might make some pancakes. And we all know pancakes are flour, eggs, milk. Well, I thought, well, if I've got the flour and the eggs, I don't need the milk, right? So after some floury, doughy disappointments, my, now, my uh, opinion on pancakes is that they're not great. So then I decided I'd go for a drive. You know, I'd, I'd vent a little bit. I've got my accelerator, I've got my clutch, don't need my brake. And now my car looks like this. What I've learned this week is if something comes in a three, you're shooting yourself in the foot if you only go for the first two. Now, I have a serious point to make with that, and this is something that, as Andy said, has really been put on my heart by God in the last week or so, and something that I feel burdened and excited to share this morning. Because the reality is we are very familiar with Christmas. We're very familiar with the fact that Jesus has been born, that God has come into the world. We're often very familiar with Easter. We know the fact that Jesus died for us and that he rose again. And that's fantastic. But how familiar are we with the third part of that story that we confessed in the Apostles' Creed? That he died, was buried, and ascended into heaven. How familiar are we with the ascension of Jesus? The great Puritan preacher John Owen had this to say. The unfamiliarity of our faith in this area is the cause of all of our worries, disconsolation, and most of our weakness in obedience. Our unfamiliarity with the ascension, according to John Owen, is the cause of most of our worries, disconsolation, and weakness in obedience. So let's unpack this this morning. Let's see why this is so important for us to understand. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Psalm 110. This is my favorite um, Old Testament passage, my favorite Psalm. This is also the most quoted Uh, Old Testament passage in the New Testament, quoted and alluded to 23 times. So this is a big deal. We're going to read the first four verses. So it says this, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray as we approach the word of the living God. 
Heavenly Father, you have spoken to us. You have given us your word. Lord, give us ears to hear it, we pray. Lord, whilst we're surrounded by distractions and things that take our attention, I pray that we would be coming to your word as thirsty travelers who need to drink from it. Teach us, we pray. Amen. So when we're talking about the ascension of Jesus, we're not only talking about kind of a departure, but we're also talking about an arrival. Now, this is the reality of any departure or arrival, of any coming and going. Whenever you leave somewhere, you're going somewhere and vice versa. So for instance, when you go off to university, you're leaving home. Leaving somewhere means going somewhere. And so when it comes to this moment, as Jesus has died and has resurrected and is now here with his disciples about to go to heaven, what we have is two groups of people. On the one hand, we have a group who are saying, he's leaving us. He's going away from us. He's no longer going to be here with us. But on the other hand, there's another group. And that other group is saying, finally, he's coming back to us. He's coming back to be with us. And those are the people in heaven. See, Jesus came down from heaven to earth with a task. And now he's only going back. He only can go back because that task is complete. Exactly what he was sent to do has now been done. He was given the task to come and purchase his people, to win them back. And he would not return unless he had done everything necessary to achieve that goal, to win his people. As he leaves, his departure is the loudest message, I have done what I came to do. I have bought my people. And so that's really important because it means that we shouldn't get it confused. When the disciples see Jesus going, they aren't mourning. They aren't sad. He leaves them not as mourners who are without him, but he leaves them commissioned. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine, therefore go. I am with you until the end of the age. He doesn't say go because I'm not with you. He says go because I am with you. He leaves them commissioned for mission. And his ascension, his going up, is directly related to this mission. Because as Jesus goes, he goes from local to global. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you were one of the disciples, or if you were someone around in the first century, and you wanted to talk to Jesus, you would have to go and find him and talk to him. If you wanted to experience the power of Jesus, you would have to go to him and ask him to reveal it. But now, now because he's going to heaven, and heaven isn't like geographically related to us in the same way, it's a different dimension. Now, if you want to talk to Jesus, you can just pray to him. If you want to experience the power of Jesus, you don't need to go and find which town he's in, you simply ask, because he is in heaven. And so, if you read in Luke 24, when Jesus leaves the disciples, he doesn't leave mourners. It says in Luke 24, verses 51 to 53, While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. 
And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. They didn't leave that place mourning, sad, upset. They left rejoicing. So as these people go rejoicing, little do they know that they were joining in on the loudest rejoicing that has ever happened. Little do they know that they are merely raindrops in an ocean of roaring applause. As Jesus leaves earth, he leaves the rejoicing of 12 men in a town somewhere in the Middle East. That's what he sees as he goes. And yet as he arrives in heaven, he comes to the thunderous roar of myriads upon myriads of angels as they welcome their king home. Imagine that scene. This is an, an acclamation louder than a thousand packed stadiums as Jesus comes back into heaven. The thresholds of heaven shake with joy as they shout, he has done it. Joy overwhelms them as Jesus, God's son, returns, having completed this, this task that he was sent for. He is back. Now, I'm not really much of a sports fan myself, but back in 2015, when the Rugby World Cup was going on and I lived in Exeter, they had huge screens put around Exeter so that huge crowds could watch the game together. Now, as I say, I'm not particularly invested in rugby, but as I was there with this rugby mad crowd, and as England got the ball, whatever they had done, if they just got it, or especially when they got tries, there was this atmosphere that was just contagious, this thunder that happened as drinks were thrown in the air and applause came and clapping. There was this sense of this wonder as we watched our champions play for us. Now, if you're a sports fan and have been to games, then you know this far better than I do, but that's just an experience that I have of it. That is nothing compared to the sound that is now going on in heaven, because Jesus is back. Think about this. If there is joy in heaven, as Jesus says, when one sinner returns, if there is joy for that, then what was there when the one who causes sinners to return and saves all that do so, what was it like when he was received back into glory? No heart can conceive, much less any tongue express the glorious reception of Jesus Christ into heaven. Their hero has returned. Imagine that scene. I wonder if anyone here has heard the story of Louis Zamperini. This is an excellent story. His story was told in a book published in 2010 called Unbroken. It was on the New York Times bestseller list. And then four years later, it was turned into a film directed by Angelina Jolie. Now, Louis Zamperini was born in the early 20th century and lived in a town called Torrance, California. He was a runner in high school and qualified for the Olympics in 1939, but in 1941, he joined the Air Force in the war. 
And whilst flying in a bomber in 1943, it crashed in the sea. Immediately, eight out of the 11 people on board died. But he survived with two others. And he was at sea. After being at sea for 47 days, the Japanese Navy captured him and held him as a prisoner of war for two years where he was tortured and beaten. After a year of being missing, back in Torrance, California, he was declared dead in action, killed in action. He was gone. But then, as the war starts to come to an end, in 1945, rumors start to come around in Torrance, California. Samperini might not be dead. And then rumors become confirmations. And then all of a sudden, not only is he alive, but he's coming home. And so as he arrives back in Torrance, he is given a hero's welcome. Here is our champion, the one who we thought was dead, but is back. There was celebrations and jubilations. He went on to become a Christian evangelist, spreading messages of forgiveness and peace. An amazing man. But the point is this, if this is how much they celebrated over someone who none of them knew before the war, how much more is there rejoicing in heaven when their prince, Jesus himself, comes back? But this is what we need to take note of. This is a triumph, a celebration that has been won. And just as the disciples did, so too can you and I join in with that celebration this morning. We too can be drops in that ocean of praise. We are invited to join in the jubilations. In Hebrews 12, in fact, it says that this is what coming to church is. Hebrews 12, verse 22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. That's what we do. We come to join in that celebration. John Flavel says this, So at his return, there again, when he had finished his work of redemption, there were no less demonstrations given by those blessed creatures of their delight and joy in it. The very heavens echoed and resounded on that account. And yea, the triumph is not ended at this day, nor ever shall. The celebration is not over yet. It's still resounding in heaven. Let it still resound on earth. Let's be God's people who are singing the praises of the one who died and rose and has gone to heaven. And so now as Jesus has come into heaven, now as Jesus arrives here, we now see the conversation that we read in Psalm 110 begin. Jesus has now come to the Father. And as I say, we see the conversation that we read. The Father now sees Jesus, his precious son. And he sees him now returning because he's conquered. And words cannot fathom the joy that fills the Father's heart. Words cannot express what he sees as he sees Jesus. You see, on earth, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the Father had called from heaven, this is my son, 
my beloved son with whom I'd well pleased. At the beginning of the ministry, before he'd done anything, before he had done what he was sent to do, the father expressed his overflowing love and joy. But now as the father sees the son, those words aren't enough. He can't express his pleasure in the right words. And so he simply says what we see in Psalm 110. Take a seat. My son, take a seat. Take a seat. Verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Be seated as king, be enthroned, and I will defeat your enemies. The father expresses his praise and love for his son by simply saying, be seated at my right hand. But here's the question, why does the father overflow with such pleasure? Why does he enthrone him? Is it merely because he's back? Is it merely because he's happy to have him again? Like I said earlier, why is he back? He's back because he's done what the father sent him to do by his people. So get this, the father rejoices. The father overflows with joy because you have been one. When he sees Jesus, he sees you. Jesus tells us in Matthew 25 that the hope we have when we meet the Father is the phrase, welcome home, good and faithful servant. Jesus here has won your welcome home. The Father rejoices because you have been bought. And now Jesus is seated as king over all things. He receives the prize for his suffering. He has done the work, and now comes the crown. And so from this point onwards, we see that his kingdom is extending. His rule is going further. As we read in verse 1, it says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Not, and one day your enemies might be your footstool. Not, sit, and one day they will be, but sit until they are. His kingdom is extending. His power is going forth from now. And as he sits down to reign, as Jesus comes into heaven and takes his seat by the Father's side, it sends the loudest and most powerful message to both his enemies and his followers. The message it sends to his enemies is, what are you going to do? You've already tried killing him. Satan has done his worst. Jesus died, but dead people now don't sit on thrones to reign Jesus is. What can you do? O oh, sting of death, O oh, Satan, O oh, powers of darkness, the king is on the throne. The other message it sends is, does he say to them, are we going to wait to rule until you've kind of done your thing, O oh, enemies? No. Verse 2, rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus doesn't wait for them. He has sat down. He rules in their midst. They don't phase him. The other message it sends, what power does he have? 
Verse 2 tells us, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. The Father himself gives Jesus his power. What can these enemies do? When they ask him, okay, fair enough, but you and what army? In verse 3 we read this, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. The ones that he came down to buy, yeah, we're the army. And so as Jesus sits, he shows us off to the enemy. And he says, I'm dead. I was dead, I'm alive, and in my death and resurrection, I bought them. What are you going to do? It says he dresses us in holy garments. We have our uniform. But what message does it send to his followers? to those of us who know him as Lord. It says this, Jesus would not be seated unless he has done everything necessary to win. Jesus has had his D-Day. He has now landed on the beaches of Normandy and his victory is assured. He cannot lose this one. And we need to know that. We need to know that Jesus is on the throne. He is progressively dealing with his enemies. He's now on his mop-up job as he goes from Normandy inwards to use an expression. But it also tells us this, no matter what happens, the king is on the throne. Every follower of Jesus can be assured of this, Jesus is on the throne no matter your situation, no matter what is going on in your life. As Stephen, the first master of the Christian faith, was being killed by being stoned, he looks up, into heaven, and he says, I see the Son of Man sat at the right hand of the Father. In other words, he's saying this, even while you pick up stones to stone me, even whilst you look at me with death in your eyes, my King is on the throne. Your stones cannot take him off. So kill me. What difference does it make? That's what it tells the believers. That's what it tells us who follow him. Our King is on the throne. Jesus is king, not culture, not government, not your financial situation, not COVID-19. The economy is not king. Death is not king. Perhaps you've tasted the sting of death. You need to know this morning, death does not have the final say. Your job is not king. Nothing else compares to Jesus. He is king. In fact, I would go as far as to say that an essential element of the Christian faith is the ability to look at everything else in the world and say to it, you are not my king. The first Christians had this battle. They were under pressure to say, Caesar is Lord. Their reply, Christ is Lord. The Christian movement started from this denial that anyone else can take Jesus' place. Christianity was considered a political movement at first because they were saying, you are not king, Jesus is. But it also means we have a choice to make. Verse 3 says, your people will offer themselves freely. Freely. He's not looking for people who can drag themselves into their uniform. How do you respond to the king this morning? How do you respond to the one on the throne? 
See, Jesus' people, they offer themselves freely. They don't have one foot in the world and one foot in with him. They're not looking to try and please the world whilst also trying to be a Christian, to sing his praises whilst also singing the praises of whatever our culture tells us. In James, we're told friendship with the world is to be an enemy with God and vice versa. To be an enemy of the world is to be a friend of God. Whatever it, how, however it may come, stranger, weirdo, bigot, outdated, we have to be those people who stand up and say, I don't care what you say about me. I care what my king says about me. I care what the king says about me. Throw your stones, however they may look, but I see the son of man sat at the right hand of the father. How do you respond to the one on the throne this morning? How do you respond to the king? Are you his or are you the world's? Because there is no in between. And so as we carry on through this psalm, we come to verse four. And we see that this conversation between the father and the son, we find that there is more to his ascension than merely sitting down to reign. We see in verse four that he has come to be our priest. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is our priest. He is unlike every priest that has gone before him. He is superior in every way. The Father has declared him to be a priest forever, not a priest that ends. A priest could only finish their job by dying. Jesus isn't going to do that. Jesus is superior. He cannot die. You might be wondering, what does it mean by a priest after the order of Melchizedek? And that's fair enough. I won't go into a detailed description of it, but it's important that we know Melchizedek is a character who appears very briefly in Genesis 12, uh, and he is a priest king of Jerusalem. And so what we're, what we're being told when we see that Jesus is a king, a priest after the order of Melchizedek, is that he is the king priest, the priest king. Jesus isn't balancing two jobs. He isn't a king who's also a priest. He is a king as a priest and a priest as a king. He is the enthroned priest, the one who will never retire. This is what he has gone to heaven for in order to complete our salvation. While on earth, he paid for our sins. He rose to life in order to give us life. And now he has gone to heaven to fight the battle to win us. Heaven is not his holiday. Don't, don't think of it as though Jesus has gone and now he's left it to us because he's gone off. He's done his bit and now it's over to us. That's not right at all. Jesus is in heaven for us. It's essential that he's in heaven, not on earth. Because this is the reality. Wherever I am, I need Jesus to intercede for me. Earlier we talked about Jesus going from local to global. If I needed Jesus, if, if I had Jesus with me, whenever I needed intercession, I would need him next to me all the time. But now he's in heaven 
to intercede for me wherever I am. He sat down to intercede on our behalf. He has done what no other priest could do. Every other priest had always one more sacrifice to offer. Why? Because we always sin. We do a sacrifice. What do you know? I've sinned again. Need another one. But now Jesus has offered the perfect sacrifice. Jesus has laid down his own life to buy you. There is no more sacrifices to do. And so he has sat down. There is no chairs in the temple. There was no chairs because they could never take a seat. Jesus has taken a seat. He shows us that his sacrifice was perfect. All your sins, all your sins, past, present, future, have already been laid on the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And so we're told in Hebrews 9, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He's not in an earthly temple. He's in the true temple, heaven. And whilst he's there, it says he's on our behalf. As he shows his wounds to the Father, the proof that he has died in our place. What does it mean for him to be there on our behalf? It means that he still bears the wounds that should have been mine, even while he's in heaven. Even as he reigns as king, the wounds that should have been mine are in his body. There is a continual reminder to the father as the father sees Jesus' wounds that my sins have been paid for. He didn't just die as the sacrifice. He now lives to offer himself continually, presenting that sacrifice over and over to the father in my place, the wounds that should have been mine. It is though in each wound the Father can see my name. The Father can see your name. As he looks at Jesus, he sees your sins forgiven. His interceding for me is therefore a guarantee. I cannot be lost. If you believe in Jesus, you cannot be lost because the sins that you needed to pay have been paid by him. The security that you need to know that you're continually forgiven are in him. And he stands before the Father. He prays for me. He lives for me. He constantly is proving that my debt was paid. He is in heaven for me. If you are a Christian, he is in heaven for you. If you're not a Christian, then I urge you to give yourself to him. And he is there for you. Let's take a quick look at Hebrews 7, where it says this. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let's just split that up into three parts quickly. Let's see the first part of that verse. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. What does that mean? I cannot screw this up. 
My salvation is not dependent on me, but on him interceding for me. Because I am his, he will bring me home. Jesus has staked his reputation as a saviour on his saving of you. If you don't make it there, it proves that he's not very good and he has staked his reputation on it. You will come home because I have bought you. My redemption is secure. Your redemption is secure. Hebrews uses the language of an anchor in heaven. Think about what an anchor does. It holds you in a place. It means that you cannot move. You become immovable. Jesus is our anchor. I am held in heaven. The next thing that we read in this verse is it says, since he always lives. Jesus' very life now is a taunt to Satan, is a taunt to those who would accuse you. It's as though as Jesus lives, it gives us the right to say, what can you do to me? You've already tried taking down my king and he made it. He lives for us. When Satan comes with his accusations, just know that Jesus' very life is anathema to Satan. Jesus' very life is a stench to Satan. And lastly, we read this. He lives to make intercession for them. Have you ever got to the end of yourself? He stands for you. He prays for you. He represents you to the Father. He lives to make intercession for you because he loves you. When I'm stuck in my lackluster prayer life and constant sin, the Father doesn't see me. He sees Jesus, the perfect Jesus. He makes intercession for me. What possible taunt can the enemy or accusers bring to us? Our hope is secure in the one who cannot die, but has instead defeated the power of death. I implore you this morning, Christian or not, he is not far from you. He wants to draw near to you. He is interceding for you. He is watching over you. He has you. When you get to the end of yourself, he still has you. Even just yesterday, the Lord showed me his intercession for me through an answered prayer, through someone who is very dear to me. And it was a powerful reminder. He is not far. Go after him. Perhaps this morning you're feeling weak. Perhaps you find it hard to proclaim allegiance to Christ in this world. Perhaps you find it hard to stand up for what you know is right because it's easier to go with what everyone says. Perhaps you find it hard to hope. Maybe you're anxious about this state we're in. Maybe you are at the end of yourself. Christ would not have ascended unless he had done everything necessary to win you back to the Father. The fact that he is in heaven is a statement. You are secure. And now he reigns. He is on the throne and he intercedes 
for you. Before we allow our hearts to wander, let's reset our gaze and join that triumph in heaven. The Lamb has conquered. Jesus has won the war. Our champion, our king, our priest, and our savior. Live in that truth. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, words cannot express the praise and the worship that you deserve. Lord, our words fail, our emotions fail, our attention span fails to give you the glory that you deserve. Lord, we pray that by your spirit you would empower us to see the king on the throne, to worship as the angels in heaven worshipped when you came back. Change us for your glory, we pray, Lord. We thank you that you are interceding for us, that you live at the right hand of the Father for us. Lord, energize us with that truth. Send us into your arms, we pray. May we obey and love and serve our King. In your precious name, Jesus, we pray. In your precious name, Jesus, we pray.